Steel Profiles podcast is brought to you by AISC Continuing Education. Visit AISC.org seminars to find a seminar in a city near you. Welcome to another episode of Steel Profiles. I'm your host, Margaret Matthew, Senior Engineer in the Continuing Education Department at AISC. My guest today is Theodore Galambos, Professor Emeritus of Structural Engineering at the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis. Ted received his bachelor's and master's degrees from the University of North Dakota in Grand Forks in 1953 and 1954, respectively, and his Ph.D. in civil engineering from Lehigh University in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania in 1959. He had an academic research and teaching career at Lehigh University, at Washington University in St. Louis, and at the University of Minnesota. He is author of several technical books and scores of published articles. He is an honorary member of the American Society of Civil Engineers and a member of the National Academy of Engineering, the Structural Stability Research Council and the International Association of Bridge and Structural Engineering. He is a registered professional engineer in Minnesota and Missouri and has been a longtime member of the AISC Specification Committee. He holds honorary doctorates from the Technical University of Budapest, the University of North Dakota, and the University of Minnesota. Welcome, Ted. Thank you so much for agreeing to be my podcast interview today. Glad to be here. You immigrated from Budapest to Hungary when you were 19 and then did your bachelor's and master's degrees at the University of North Dakota. Um, how did you make it all the way from Hungary to North Dakota? That's a long story because uh, we left Hungary in 1944 in December, a couple of days before the uh, Soviet army and uh, we spent four years in Germany. During that time, I did finish my high school in a German high school. I had to change languages. And then in 1948, we were brought to the U.S. by the United Nations. And then we were with uh, my dad's aunt in Akron, Ohio. We were there six months, and I got a job in a fabricating shop. You know, just uh, a yard boy bringing in the steel and scraping off the rust and punching holes and mm -hmm. things like that. And how old were you then? I was uh, 19, I was 20. And my father was a uh, Baptist minister, and during that time, uh, the first the first six months, he was at a seminary in uh, Rochester, New York, and then he got a church in Washburn, North Dakota. And there I was unemployed for a couple of days. I was wandering around, and I uh, wandered into the courthouse, which was next door. And there was a guy in the basement sitting at a drawing table. And I walked in there, and I talked with him, and I found out that he was in the U.S. Army, and he had built a bridge in the town where I went to high school there in Germany. So we got to talking, and then I got a job as a uh, surveyor's helper on a road job. Mm -hmm. I decided to become a civil engineer, so I contacted the University of North Dakota, and I went 
there in the fall. I had $300 that I made that summer. I paid for the tuition, bought the books and the room to stay in, and then I had no money left. So the employment agency from the university sent me to downtown to a restaurant, which was probably the best restaurant between Minneapolis and Seattle. <laughs> and there I met a, a Lithuanian lady, and she put me on as a waiter. So that's how I then had my food. So in four years, I got my bachelor's, and then I was looking for work. I didn't find anything because I wasn't a citizen, so I stayed on and got a master's degree. And uh, then I got a job, but I also became a citizen, so I was drafted a, a few months after that. Oh, you were drafted. Okay, that was my next question, was you were, you were in the U.S. Army. Yeah. So they drafted you, so what was that experience like? That was uh, very interesting because uh, I had uh, this experience as a surveyor by that time. I had five summers of surveying in North Dakota. So I was immediately classified as a construction surveyor and after basic training I, I did surveying. I uh, was assigned to a airfield construction battalion in, well you will be surprised, in the Bahamas. Oh! <laughs> I, yeah, I was, uh, yes. Boy, that must have been rough. <laughs> well, it was rough because it was uh, seven days a week work and just, just a camp on an island sure. with uh, 500 other men. But what I did learn there is I, besides uh, how construction work is done, I also learned a lot of humility and how to deal with people and how to know that there are people who are different Mm -hmm. from me. So it was a, a very uh, good experience for life. So how long were you in the Army? It was 18 months. 18 months? Yeah. You kind of talked about how you kind of stumbled on to the engineering, civil engineering field. Um, was there something specific about it that really attracted you to it? Well, you know, before we came to the States, we were in a uh, displaced person camp in Munich. It was an old army, German army barracks. And there were uh, a group of American friends, you know, the, the Quakers, that were working with the refugees and we became friendly with them. My sister and I worked for them in the little library they had in camp. One of them asked me, well, what are you going to do when you come to the States? And I said, I don't know, but I'd like to go to college. And, and I had an idea that uh, somehow I could work my way through. And she said, well, what are you going to study? And I said, I don't know. So she gave me a bunch of brochures from the... Um, Encyclopedia Britannica on, on different careers. Mm -hmm. I looked through that and I picked civil engineering and uh, never regretted it. So you already had that? I didn't, know, I didn't really know what it was until I saw that brochure. <laughs> and I looked at other career paths and said, no, this is, this is what I want to do. It was, uh, you know, things were easy. You did your doctorate work at Lehigh University. Right. Where did your career take you after that? Well, uh, the reason I went to Lehigh was I was working at uh, Babcock & Wilcox, which is a boiler power plant company. Okay. They asked me to see what happens if to a power plant if a nuclear bomb went off a mile from the plant. I had no, no idea. So I uh, interviewed a lot of people in the company. 
-hmm. And I discovered that they had no idea either. <laughs> so I said, well, maybe I better learn more about things. So I wrote to Illinois and to Lehigh. From Illinois, I got a nice letter from Bill Hall offering me a, a research assistantship. But uh, at Lehigh, Lynn Beadle got on the phone. The, the day he got my application and called, and uh, that's how I went to Lehigh. How you went to Lehigh. And at Lehigh, September 1st, 1956, I had met John Fisher in the parking lot because he was starting that same day. Same day, wow. So we were, we were friends ever since. So when I got finished my PhD there, I stayed on from, well, I got the PhD in 59, and I stayed on until 65, uh, working in the Fritz lab and, and doing research and teaching. And then I had a student who was there from Washington University. In fact, by the way, John Fisher also was at Washington University. Oh, he was? Yeah, he was. So I knew about Washington University, and this guy went back after he got his master's, and a couple of years later, he called me and said, you know, we need a professor here in structural engineering. Would you be interested? And I said, no, I like it where I am. He said, oh, just come on. Anyway, <laughs> again, there was a guy there who, uh, the department head, who could have sold the Brooklyn Bridge <laughs> several times over in a day. So he convinced me to go there, which was, again, a perfect move. So I stayed there until, well, from 65 to 81. Well, about 1980, I was at Washington, D.C. at an NSF meeting, and this guy at the dinner afterwards was sitting next to me, and he said, I want to show you something. And he then showed me the uh, plans for the underground building in Minnesota. Oh, and that's how they lured you away. And this guy was another one of those people who could sell the Brooklyn Bridge. <laughs> so I went up to Minnesota. So that's how it worked. That's how so it worked. So we're all kind of, uh, you know, almost predestined things. So yeah, you were a professor at Washington University in St. Louis from 65 to 81. Were you in St. Louis when the arch was finished in 1965? Oh yes, that was a wonderful experience. You know, I have lots of pictures of the arch being built and then, you know, as it went up from ground zero and then the, the final coming together. Of course, they had that uh, a truss between the two arches. Then it came back like uh, like the pinchers on a, on a bug, you know. Uh -huh. And then uh, when it became unstable or close to unstable, they put in a brace between the two branches and then they kept on and they finally came together. Oh, that was exciting. Exciting. But there were three things going on at that time. The arch, the Eats Bridge and the uh, the stadium. Oh, which they the stadium had. was big. Yeah, the, all of those things were going on, and I used to take the students down there. There was lots of lots of good stuff going on, right? Right at the same place, almost. Yeah, yeah, that's all right there, right in downtown. Yeah, yeah. So you take your students down to see what was going. Oh on. yes. Yeah. yeah. That would have been great. That would have been. Oh, that exciting. was a, that was a wonderful experience. Then, of course, the Eats Bridge was there too, which was uh, another. It's a historic. Yes. Structure, so. You know, they're building a new bridge. Yeah. They just broke ground yeah, on further, it. Yeah, further up. Further north, yeah. Yeah. But still right there in downtown, so yeah. that, that's going to be exciting the next few years. Yeah. Jim Fisher uh, told me a story about a research project you did in St. Louis at the infamous Pruitt-Igo housing project, a building that was scheduled for demolition, or I guess it was many buildings that were being demolished. It was demolished. 39 buildings. He said while he was there working on that with you that he feared for his life. <laughs> 
<laughs> for multiple reasons. Oh, he did, huh? Well, Can you tell us about that he's project? He's a, a chicken. <laughs> See, I, I believe in structures, okay? And I knew it wasn't going to fall down. Well, he said he trusted you that it wasn't, but he said once he got up in the building and it was moving that he was yeah. not okay. so sure. Well, you know uh, what happened? I don't know how much of this you, you know. About Pruitt-Igoe? Yeah. I, I did some research and, you know, I didn't know anything about it. was really stunned to find out it was right there in St. Louis where, where I live. Yeah. And, and it's it's really a fascinating story about oh, yeah. the, whole, the whole project. And well, anyway, it, it failed yes. sociologically and they were going to uh, demolish and they had a uh, trial of uh, trying to uh, blow things up. So they took, I think, one building and there was this guy from Dallas. In fact, he was, uh, he was an AISC speaker number of times. But at any rate, uh, they blew up a building and uh, there was a lot of publicity. But they decided that when you blow up a building, you have the mix of all of the materials and uh, it wasn't clean. Right. So they were going to demolish the, the rest of it with a headache ball and take the bricks in one pile and the concrete in another pile and then the uh, reinforcing in another pile. So it was pretty labor intensive, mm -hmm. but they salvaged the different parts that, so they could be reused. And there was this one tower that was left. Again, it was a lunch that I had in, with a Berkeley NSF visitation, and the guy next to me was Ron Mays. And I said, well, I, I have this idea. There is this uh, structure there that could be tested for seismic stuff. And we started to talk, and we uh, got in touch with NSF, and they gave us money to write a proposal, and then they gave us money to do the testing. What we did was Ron Mays and I were the co principal investigators and then we hired Boeing to take uh, we put a uh, shaker uh, a box on the top floor on a uh, steel plate on which we had an aluminum plate with holes in it and we put uh, hardened steel balls in it and then we put a, a, a steel box on top and that could be loaded full of lead Oh, okay. And then we had a uh, hydraulic jack and uh, a uh, dynamometer to measure the forces attached to the wall. And uh, they had a pump that they used for some of their missile testing. So I had all of this sitting on the 11th floor. I had to uh, open up the, the top of the building to get this stuff down in there. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the uh, instrumentation, the accelerometers, and that we subcontracted to McDonnell Douglas in St. Louis. And so uh, what uh, what we did the first time, we, we had another group coming in to do dynamic tests with a, a rotating uh, mass. And they, uh, so we determined the, the various frequencies and mode shapes without damaging the building. And then uh, we installed this doomsday device and started uh, shaking it and uh, getting damage and getting uh, ultimately, uh, well, on, on the first floor, we took out six out of the 13 columns that were holding the thing. But we couldn't really destroy the building because as you 
increased the damage, your uh, dynamics changed, and so it, it quieted, quieted down again. I really wasn't going to lose all of my equipment, so uh, we kept it. Uh, well, the, the building was uh, moving at natural frequencies of a, of a hertz and a half or so, about, uh, this was 90 feet high, and it was moving back and forth about three feet this way and that way. I mean, the building was dancing. Mm -hmm. And it was shaking. And, and that's I, while Jim was in it. That was, <laughs> that, that was it wasn't at the full full thing, but uh, he he was on the on the advisory committee, and uh, he he got scared. <laughs> but he didn't get as scared as the Jack Scalzi, who was the um, NSF guy. <laughs> oh, he. But I uh, I had confidence in, even though it was concrete. It was. <laughs> it, I had confidence in it. So it, anyway, it was a fun project. It was a fun project. So was that your most interesting project, or do you have another what you would call most interesting research project? No, I think I think this was the most interesting. Was it? Yeah. Uh, okay. So then you talked about you moved on to being a professor at the University of Minnesota, and you taught there the rest of your career. Yeah. Uh, with such a long history with engineering students, what's the best advice you could give them? Well, I tell you that uh, the most important course that they really ought to get in their bloodstream is statics. Yes, but, uh, that's the foundation for everything. Yeah, yeah, and 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 not only for structures, but for straight thinking. Yeah. So uh, I think you know all the rest. Uh, you know. And nowadays with uh, with the computers, but you still have to know your statics to see whether what you have is right or not. Yeah, if it makes any sense. No. What do you think's the greatest reward you've received from teaching for so many years? Oh, it's well, you know, come to the AISC committee meetings or, or the conferences, and uh, all of the students, former students. I mean, that's that's great. And and you know, uh, I don't know if you know. Uh, Terry Zwick? Yes, of course, Terry. Uh, anyway, he was an undergraduate, and he wanted to work in steel, and he couldn't get a job. So I said, well, why don't you go up to Mississippi Valley, which no longer exists, I don't think, and said, I'll work for you for nothing for the summer. And he did that, and, uh, you know, he's... I think he was a pretty big shot in the AISC. <laughs> he and is, and he he's the head of Atlas Iron Works in St. Louis. Yeah. Yeah. No. He, uh, so so that then there are many many examples like that. Yeah. But since you know him and you you know that uh, I had influence on him and and uh, we remained good friends. Mm -hmm. and, and the thing is, I have so many of these cases, and I have a lot of friends. Mm -hmm. So that's a. So it's very fulfilling. Yes. 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 You're known as the father of LRFD. Oh, yeah. Being one of its first proponents. Uh, when did you first start working with LRFD? Okay, well, that's another longer story. But at uh, Lehigh, we were very gung-ho about plastic design and uh, working at the uh, ultimate level rather than the serviceability level. And then I got involved with a committee that developed the first load factor design code for bridges. That was in the uh, late, mid to late 60s. And from that came the idea of changing the AISC specifications and uh, getting a uh, load and resistance factor type, uh, well we called it first limit states design, but mm -hmm. since concrete used that, we had to, we had to change. <laughs> 
any rate, uh, uh, Ivan Viest, I don't know if you know him. I don't know. No, anyway, he was a Bethlehem Steel research engineer, and uh, he uh, helped to get support from the AISI to start this in 1969. And uh, I uh, was able to get Ravi Ravindra, who had just gotten his PhD at Waterloo University in uh, Toronto, in, in Canada. And uh, he came to work with me in uh, Washington University in 69 or 70. And and we had, I would say, one of the most wonderful collaborations that we we had in the, it worked about three years. And every day something new. It was, it was it was fantastic. And by about 1975, we had the LRFD specs, which is now your regular spec, pretty much in place, and things are very much still in that same same uh, framework. You know, the details have changed a little, mm -hmm. but uh, that uh, and then and then it took uh, took a while to uh, convince this bunch, this AISC bunch. Yeah, and then uh, and then uh, we said that well, we can do this for steel, but you know, the load part has to be really applicable for all the materials. So the NSF sponsored the two months of uh, summer work at the Bureau of Standards with Bruce Ellingwood and Alan Cornell and Jim McGregor and myself. We were basically locked up in the room <laughs> during the summer of 79 and we hammered out pretty much the, the load factors that are in the, in the uh, ASCE 7. Okay. And uh, so that's still what we're using today. Yeah. Yeah. And then and then we had uh, there was an ASCE conference in September Structures Congress in Chicago in uh, September 79 and we had uh, a whole uh, series of sessions there and that was all published in an ASCE structural journal September 79 and um, again that's sort of the basis for what went on. Then it took in 81 we had a uh, meeting just like this in Oconomowoc, Milwaukee, near Milwaukee. A specification committee meeting. Yeah and and that's where the uh, AISC LRFD spec was hammered out and it was a fiery meeting. I was gonna uh, say what did everybody think about it? <laughs> uh, well there was some uh, between George Winter and Ivan Viest, uh, they almost came to blows. Oh, oh and, and these both are, you know, PhD types. I mm -hmm. mean, these, these weren't practice, practicing people. And uh, but and then it took until '86 for the first spec to come out. So '69 to '86. So that's quite a while. Yeah. Yeah. But it was it was it was very worthwhile. Uh, have you ever thought about writing your LRFD memoirs? <laughs> It's probably a really good story. People keep asking me this uh, because I have other experiences also that, uh, you know, the war and mm -hmm. after the war. One of my former students, Max Lay in Australia, he and I have been talking about uh, writing uh, the uh, history of plastic design. Mm -hmm. But the LRFD memoirs, I, I don't know, there are still too many of them are alive. So <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> You could write them and then say they have to be published in no, no. 50 or 100 years. Like You know, I, I, just to tell you about what I think of uh, writing memoirs, and that is if you're going to write a memoir of your life, you should start thinking about it in high school and <laughs> start taking notes. <laughs> yeah. 
because your memory is faulty. <laughs> Unless it's written down sure. on a daily basis, it's gone. It's gone. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've worked through uh, with Ivan Viest on his memoirs, and uh, it took him, I think, four or five years to get it all together, and he took, he took notes. Oh, he did? Yeah. yeah. I, <laughs> so, you know, I don't think it's, uh, it's accurately in there anymore. Okay. So, it's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> You've been a longtime friend of AISC and very involved. How has AISC changed since you first became involved? Hmm. My first involvement was at Lehigh and uh, the plastic design work and then the 1963 specification which was a big turning point in, in the AISC. And the, uh, the person that was uh, the uh, sort of the controlling personality was Ted Higgins. I think that since after he retired, the AISC was more of a uh, collective uh, organization. Uh, I think Bill Millick probably had a very big influence on AISC and, and um, Jerry Heyer. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, it, I think it's, you know, this, this all came then with when uh, the laws began to change that you had to have consensus documents and that uh, there couldn't be any uh, strong personality pushing things. It all had to be voted on and it had to be sort of uh, leveled out. Right, that's the ANSI accreditation, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So, so things that's that's those are the things that have changed, and uh, and I think uh, attitudes or, or the not the concerns about legal issues have really been uh, stronger than they used to be in the beginning. Right. And and AISC has become a a much much bigger organization, and uh, not just an engineering organization, but also a uh, a commercial organization, and then and also in in terms of uh, assisting people and in the beginning when I first started there were a lot more people out in the field and uh, had uh, regional engineers and and they were fairly frequent you know yeah and then uh, Ray Tide was one of them mm-hmm. Larry Kloiber and then many many others those things have changed and now everything is a little more uh, centralized but then you've got the communications equipment and all of that you know things sure. have Sure. But it's, uh, it's still a great organization, and I tell you something, compared to uh, some of the other similar organizations, you've got some, some pretty heavy lifters. In, in, I mean, you've got eight people in the National Academy of Engineering in your committees, which, uh, which is, it is, it, it, it is absolutely so. So uh, there, is, uh, there is a lot here and a lot to be proud of. We are very proud, and that leads me to my next question. At AISC, we depend greatly on our volunteers that serve on the specification committee and the task committees that are so generous with their time. Uh, What do you get out of serving on the committees? Oh, well, obviously the structure of the AISC specs is something that we started to work out. So, I mean, I've I've been rewarded. And uh, there are lots of things in there that that I've put in and... and, uh, 
I've worked with, and, and then fellowship with the people. I mean, that's, uh, there's plenty of rewards here. And the research support uh -huh. through the years, you know, that, that's not inconsiderate. So that's a big thing too. So no, it, it was a it was a very very rewarding experience. And you've been on the specification committee for how long? I don't know exactly, <laughs> but but I think it's somewhere in the early to mid seventies. So you've been yeah. around for a while. Yeah, I've, I've been around. I but doesn't matter. <laughs> You've no doubt also attended a great number of AISC steel conferences over the years. Do you have one that stands out as your favorite? Hmm. Well, you know there was this uh, this conference in Las Vegas during the um, election campaign, and I don't I don't remember what year it was exactly, but uh, Ross Perot was a candidate. So probably in the eighties, I guess. Yeah, and uh, or early nineties. Anyway. Uh, we had the conference in the same hotel as uh, Ross Perot, and I was giving a talk on, on design of angles at the same time that Ross Perot was giving a talk in another room <laughs> in the same hotel. <laughs> I don't know what he was talking about. <laughs> I remember the one once in Memphis, and had a, a Mississippi riverboat ride that went with that. It was, it was wonderful. <laughs> and uh, I guess one in with Tucson or so there was a rodeo that was with, with it. So there, this, it's, it's been, it's been good. So there's a lot of good ones. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in such a long and illustrious career, uh, what are you most proud of? Of my students. Yeah. I'm, I'm really proud. Uh, what do you think has been your greatest accomplishment to date? Again, the students. Your students. Yeah. So you take your students over LRFD? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, your wife, Barbara, yeah. is an avid and well-known bird watcher. Yeah. What's it like to stand in her shadow in the bird watching world? I am an assistant to a bird watcher. <laughs> And uh, I, I tell you, the big difference between her and I is patience. I just... You don't have any? Not that much. You know, I remember once standing in a ditch for <laughs> half a day to get the view of a uh, barn owl for about a millisecond. So I'm uh, not very good at that. But what we do is she has her birding activities with her uh, birding colleagues once a week on Tuesdays and they are these guys are hardcore <laughs> and then uh, on weekends Barb and I go walking in the woods or, or biking or, or cross-country skiing take pictures and uh, see birds but not they don't stand there for all day all day to, <laughs> to see it so but well, she's been a very uh, very good teacher to our uh, kids and to a, a lot of other people in teaching them about nature she was a high school teacher before before we were married and after we were married for a while and she retired after we had the first child and so how many kids do you have four four yeah all four are in this building of something really yeah wow yeah you know, my daughter is a civil engineer and uh, my oldest son is a uh, mechanical engineer with a phd working at uh, sandia corporation my next son is a welder in the fab shop mm -hmm. and the uh, youngest son is the one who uh, sort of went a little astray but he's an architect <laughs> And he is the most prominent, I think. He uh, oh, that's good. He uh, he gets uh, his build, his homes published in the architecture magazines, and he builds homes for the 
indigent in Aspen. Wow. The $16 million <laughs> homes, things like that. <laughs> right now he is building a, a very big fancy home in uh, Kiev, uh, Ukraine. Oh, okay. And he is a, I think he's a good architect in that he knows that things better not leak <laughs> and, and that everything has to fit together. So he, he is sort of between an architect and a construction manager. Yeah, sure. So he's pretty successful. Sounds like it. Uh, I've heard that you're an avid cross-country skier and snowmobiler. No, no, not snowmobiling. No. Oh, between the two, there is eternal enmity. Oh, okay, I didn't know that. Oh, yes. I think uh, Jim Fisher told me that. No, he really, he really got you uh, the wrong information. No, uh, no, no. <laughs> so you're a cross-country skier. Oh, yes. Um, have you ever had any accidents? No, I had an accident uh, downhill in Australia a long time ago, 1970, and I, I didn't think that was for me. So it's not the cross-country skiing, it was the downhill skiing that got you. Worried. Oh yeah, yeah. You said no after that. No. Uh, so you've traveled the world. Yeah. What's your favorite destination? Well, i tell you, I very much like the South. New Zealand and Australia and South Africa. And uh, I guess I've, I've spent most of the time, most of my time in Australia and I think I would feel comfortable there. So, but, To live? Yeah. To live, yeah. yeah. Is there any place that you've still got on your list that you want to go that you haven't been yet? Well, these are places that are historical and that I, I'd never get there. But there would be probably in um, the old cities in uh, what is now Uzbekistan. The, you know, the old uh, Muslim universities and the buildings that they built there. Mm -hmm. Or uh, maybe down in Iran to see the uh, cities that Alexander the Great built. Oh, that would be impressive. So, it? you know, but, but you know, this is not going to happen. But, but uh, you can dream. You can dream. You yeah. can dream. Uh, if you weren't involved in the engineering industry, what other profession do you think you would have liked to have tried? I don't think I could. Nothing? No. No? No. Engineering all the way? No, I, um, I mean, I would have been a teacher of some sort. Sure. But, uh, no, I like what I'm doing. Well, we're glad that you chose it. Oh, I'm glad too. Obviously, you speak Hungarian. Can you tell us how you say I love steel in Hungarian? Szeretem az acélt. So, we'll all have to be able to repeat that back to you now. Okay. <laughs> Whenever people come up and see you, they can they can say I love steel to you in Hungarian. Okay. Yeah, a lot of people confuse me that I'm a Greek. Oh, okay. Because of my first name and, and my last name is also, could also be Greek. But uh, if you want to translate, my, my name is uh, Theodore Victor Columbus, and that means God-given, victorious pigeon thief. <laughs> That's the translation in Hungarian or in Greek? No. Well, uh, no. Uh, uh, Theodore is Greek. God-given. Victor is victorious or heroic. Mm -hmm. And Golombos in Hungarian means pigeon catcher or pigeon thief or <laughs> something like that. So That's great. Well, thank you so much again, Ted, for taking the time to talk to me today. I really enjoyed this. Okay. I hope some of this is not going to come back and bite me. <laughs> I can't guarantee that, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. Anyway, it was a pleasure, and you are a very good interviewer. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Okay. This has been a presentation by the American Institute of Steel Construction. Join us next month, where I'll be talking to Radar Bjorhovda, our expert on international research. 
For more information on AISC continuing education opportunities, please visit us on the web at AISC.org seminars. And remember, there's always a solution in steel.